0: Well, Shah, we have something a bit different this week? So ahead of the Football World Cup, we are talking to LCP's football analytics team to discuss how they're using advanced analytics to help clubs and agencies predict future performances, unearth hidden talent, and find optimal replacements. I am really excited to learn more about this and how it all works. And so I think what we like to do when we talk to people from maybe outside the kind of world of insurance, what learnings can we take from what they do and kind of apply it to our world?
1: So welcome, Ashley Mould and Bart Hubie to the podcast. Hi, nice to be here. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, nice to be here.
0: I was going to ask straight off the bat, do you need to be a football expert to continue listening and enjoying this conversation?
2: I'd definitely say that's not the case. In fact, I've been talking to a number of clients recently about the sort of work we're doing here, and I've been surprised at how much interest we've had from people who, on the face of it, say they're not interested in football. But I think the techniques we're using are of interest to everybody. And in fact, I think they've opened up an interest in football that some people haven't hitherto the two
0: Welcome to Insurance Uncut, the podcast where we explore the big issues impacting the general insurance market.
1: I'm Charles Cronier
0: and I'm Jessica Clark. and Insurance Uncut is brought to you by LCP.
1: We'd love to hear from you so please get in touch with your questions or feedback via LinkedIn or our website.
0: Let's kick off with this week's episode.
1: And I feel like we should ask you each to kind of disclose your footballing pasts such as they are. Maybe starting with you Ashley. Happy to do that.
3: So I guess always been a huge football fan. It's something my family were very interested in when I was young. I played a lot of football when I was younger, spent a few years at Bournemouth Academy as a teenager before then leaving the football world and moving into, I guess, a more traditional path through studying economics at university and then joining LCP and becoming an actuary. I like to think, you know, I'm only 29 now, so maybe it isn't past me to be picked up by a top team and be never give up. out there performing yeah. in a couple of years' time. But that's my background in football and kind of how I've led to doing what I do now. Bart, do you also have a sort of semi-professional
1: football past?
2: (laughs) Sadly not. I actually played rugby when I was at school, but I always wanted to play football. So I'm a little bit older than Ashley. My interest in football dates back, I think, to 1966, actually, when Liverpool, my team, won the FA Cup. And I think as a child, I always liked football both for the football, but also for the stats. So I've got a full set of Rothman's football yearbooks dating back to 1973 and I've always followed the numbers as well what happens on the pitch went in became an actuary and so looked at numbers and pensions but uh, in the last few years I've been able to turn my attention professionally also to developing the football analytics business with LCP and that's sort of been a return to my childhood love of the football and numbers.
0: That's where I kind of wanted to start the conversation was how does LCP an actuarial consultancy help football clubs? It does seem quite an odd mix when you hear that we do lots of pensions and investment and we also do football.
3: <laughs> so I think within LCP, we have capabilities to analyse large data sets, perhaps more importantly in a football context, present them in ways that non-experts can use to make decisions. And I think that's where our real strength lies in terms of within football. There are large data sets out there, perhaps larger than you expect before you really get into the industry that can be analysed by various people. And indeed, a lot of clubs have people in-house doing that analysis. I think what typically people from the mathematical backgrounds in-house doing that analysis struggle with is presenting it in a particular way that non-experts can understand. I think that's where us at LCP are really coming to our own and can add value to those clubs using
1: these data sets. Actually, Jess, you touched on a point earlier about the parallels between what Ashley and Bart do and what we do in the insurance world. And of course, we're very used to being an insurance consultancy who consults to insurers who have their own in-house teams doing actuarial work. So question to you, Bart and Ashley, how do you differentiate yourselves from the work that's already being done internally at the clubs?
2: I think what we're doing is providing support to the in-house people. There are in-house people at lots of clubs. Some clubs have massive teams. Liverpool are the extreme. They have about 10 people in their analytics team. They don't really need help from outside. We've talked to them about our system. We actually use very similar systems, but they do their own thing. Many clubs can't afford that level or don't have that level of expertise. So what we do is provide their in-house people with access to the sort of algorithms that clubs like Liverpool are using, and so their people can take that analysis and then adapt it to the needs of their own particular club. And indeed, one of the things our tool, our online recruitment platform can do is allow in-house people to define their own player profiles, their own metrics that they're trying to search players on, and then apply them and then present the results internally to their management and operational people as to which players they're looking to sign.
0: You briefly mentioned it there. So the recruiting platform, which is called TransferLab, maybe Ashley do you want to just give me the elevator pitch of what it is and then we can go in to discuss kind of how it all works
3: yeah of course so the bottom line is that transfer lab is a tool to help clubs with their recruitment strategies primarily so we have a platform that covers both the men's and women's sides of the game and can be used within those recruitment processes in clubs
0: what are the kind of different mathematical techniques that you're using to kind of help inform that recruitment process
3: So we obtain match event data from an external provider and we pay for access to that data. And what that does is tells us in every single match that happens in, and we get data on over 100 men's leagues from around the world and around 25 women's leagues. So we get a breakdown of every match that happens in those leagues and a breakdown of every single event. And by an event, I mean a pass in this area of the pitch made by this player. So there's a huge amount of data that's being passed to us on a weekly basis that we then do our analysis from. So that's a data source. We then put that into our algorithm, which uses a Markov chain model. And the way we analyze player performance is by looking at the impact every one of those events has on the probability of either scoring or not conceding the next goal. So players that score well in our model are ones that have a large impact on the probability of scoring or a large impact on the probability of not conceding through their actions on the pitch.
0: So I guess it's just even if you're not a striker i guess here it's like your action has meant that a goal has then gone on and happened or conversely if you're you know you're a midfielder and you're playing defensively you're stopping the goal happening is that right
3: Yeah, that's right. And I guess people are often familiar with the concept of expected goals and quite often when expected goals, it's mentioned, it's the expected goals from shots taken on the pitch. So that's looking at one action and the probability of scoring when you take a shot and your chance of scoring is going to be higher if you're close to the goal (laughs) or if there's more force behind the shot, whatever it is. We're extending that concept out and it's worth saying for the experts listening we're not using an expected goals model, but we're effectively extending that concept out to look at every action on the pitch rather than just shooting.
1: And is this an area where lots of people around the world have got lots of very different algorithms for analysing the same data?
2: That's a good question. Football is quite an interesting business in that people know a lot of this stuff goes on, but clubs are very secretive about actually what Tools they use and what methodologies they use to sign players. So there's a lot of whispering within the football analytics industry as to who's doing what. As I said, we know that the Liverpool algorithm is quite similar to ours. In fact, when we talked to them about it, they were slightly uneasy about the fact that we were doing something that was so close to their approach. But the details of what different clubs are doing and what different suppliers do, there aren't many people who are doing something similar to us. We are reasonably unique in our particular approach
1: within our own approach as LCP do we feel like we've already got to sort of best practice and the algorithm is as good as it can be or are there things that we're looking at to continually improve that algorithm over time
3: yeah so i think there are things we have either done or seen in the past that give validation to the approach we're using and we can have confidence in our output so maybe i'll pick up on that first and i guess it's a separate point around what i and others within the team would like to do to make our platform and our models better. And I think that there is extra data we could get that would help us. But I think the biggest validation of what we're doing for me is when I go and speak to clubs and a representative will bring up a player that I've never heard of and he'll say he has this opinion of this player. And I'm searching this player's name in our database and it's going to give us kind of our verdict on what this player's strengths are, what their weaknesses are, how they compare to other players. Always slightly nervous or used to be more nervous (laughs) in the past about exactly what I would say. But so often it comes back matching their non-statistical idea they have of that player from either seeing them play live or watching them on video where there are surprising results. I explain that from a statistical perspective and quite often I get nods back at me confirming what they think. So I think that for me is the biggest validation of what we're That's doing. Amazing. And Bart, I know I have hopes in terms of what we could do to expand out what we're doing and what extra data sources could help us. I don't know if you want to pick up on a couple of points
2: there? The data we have at the moment is very wide-ranging. As you said, we cover 125 leagues across men's and women's football. We've got well over 100,000 players on our platform. I think inevitably that means that because we're covering leagues across the world, some of which have relatively limited data, what we've had to do is build a model that accommodates all different leagues. What we are aware is that there is more deeper, richer data being generated on some of the larger leagues and what we like to do is build some of that into our model so for example our model primarily looks at individual events happening on a pitch between players what it doesn't necessarily do in most circumstances is look at what else is happening on the pitch at that point in time so an effective pass is likely to be more effective if it goes to a player where there are no other players around them our model currently isn't testing that we're hoping to get that richer data to start building that into the model as we go forward
0: slightly naive question my understanding of how fifa and how football manager works is each player have kind of scores in different areas is that the type of thing that you're able to do in terms of accuracy of passing or defensive ability are you able to break it down into those different areas and is that where the matching players in terms of what their strengths are is that where that kind of comes in more
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. So we have a whole range of metrics that are used to hone in on those individual skills. And indeed, if you're looking for a particular style of central midfielder or central defender, you can build a profile that reflects the skills you think are important within those players. And quite often, clients will come to us with a request to build a new, what we call metrics, to focus on the skills they think are important. I remember one manager of a previous client of ours particularly liked players who played diagonal passes from your fullback right across the pitch to your wingers and to your attackers. We were then able to build a metric which reflected that skill and rank players based on that particular skill because it was of interest to the manager of that team. Wow.
1: Now, one thing I'm aware of is that you have a kind of a market leading position on football analytics for women's clubs. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. We launched the men's
2: version of Transfer Lab around five years ago. And we've been aiming to introduce a women's version, but the data provider that we were using didn't until about 18 months ago provide sufficiently deep data to do that. So, about 18 months ago, we launched the women's version. It's been very successful. We have, I think, five of the top clubs across Europe in women's football, including clubs in Germany who are now clients. And I think, yeah, it is the most certainly the most established and most sophisticated platform for women's football. And it's quite exciting being part of the growth of the women's game that's taken place in the last year or so, culminating, of course, with the triumph in the Euros. Another interesting aspect of that actually is one of our clients is a company that builds Football Manager, the game. They currently don't have a women's version. They're developing one and they're using SESTA Transfer Lab to help sense check the development of that version. That's awesome.
0: That's fantastic. So you mentioned there about about the use across the women's game. What are some of your kind of clients across the men's game, if you're allowed to, to tell us, who's using it? And I know you've got a few great anecdotes about it. So maybe just share some of them with our listeners.
2: Our longest standing client in the men's game is West Ham United. They were the client that we first started with about five years ago. And I think they've been a very successful team for their size of club. And indeed, they've signed some very good value players over the last five or six years. We felt that's proof of concept. As I said, clubs are very secretive about how they go about this process. So we've never had an anecdote from them about exactly who they've signed. But we do have some other ones. There was a it was a big club, I can't name, but they just signed a centre-half who they'd paid a lot of money for. And we were talking to one of their senior executives and he asked us what we thought about this player. And we looked on Transfer Lab and it said he's no better than the guy you've just sold. <laughs> but we didn't know at the time that that was going to be the case. We felt slightly awkward, one of those Astley moments when you think, is it really working? But in retrospect, it was. The player they brought in and paid a lot of money for has in the end turned out to be no better than the guy they sold relatively cheaply. You've got one you can tell, um, Ashley, I think? I guess another anecdote
3: for how Transylab has been used is that Leeds United were a long-standing client of ours before they went in a slightly different direction and decided to try and do a bit more in-house than they did externally. So some of the listeners will certainly recall that Daniel James appeared on an Amazon Prime series, actually, and where Leeds United was seen trying to negotiate his signing. And he was in their office on deadline day, and then Man United came in with the bids. And his agent, I, think it was, I assume it was his agent, stopped the deal with Leeds, and he ended up signing for Manchester United, but was signed by Leeds a few years later after perhaps not having the success at Man United that the guys there would have hoped. But Daniel James was a signing who was partly, and I have to say partly with these things because I guess we always say that Transfer Lab is part of the process of recruitment and not the whole story. But Transfer Lab was used to identify Daniel James by Leeds in the first instance. And I think he's an example of where we think Transfer Lab can really add value in terms of he was a young player, hadn't played many games. And our system had highlighted him as being a young star and you can potentially get in there ahead of other people
1: if you're able to get those kind of early views on how good someone could be. So that's very interesting. Transfer Lab can identify players who are kind of up and coming. Is there also a value sort of the other end of the scale where it can identify when people start to tail off in their careers and perhaps add less value? Is that a question you get asked? Yes. And I
3: mean, that's something we do. So we have a feature within our transfer lab platform that does project future performance. And one of the interesting things it does is it projects future performance on a particular set of skills. So to give an example, and listeners may be familiar with Christian Eriksen, who is a midfielder who's played for Tottenham, now at Man United. And I remember doing some analysis or our partners at Analysis FC doing some analysis on him when he was younger. And we were projecting his performance forwards on two different sets of skills. So one had him as a deep-lying playmaker, where he's not getting about the pitch too much. He's dictating play from the back, so it's much more focused on his technical skills. And there's another profile, which is more of a box-to-box midfielder, which is more dependent on his physical skills, his ability to get around the pitch and dictate play that way. And there was a point in time where our model predicted that Christian Eriksen would be stronger in that deep-lying playmaker role than he was in the box-to-box midfielder role as he aged and that's simply because passing is projected to deteriorate slower with age than skills like dribbling because dribbling relies more on your physical abilities than something like passing.
2: In the last couple of weeks we've actually had a call with an insurance brokers who are heavily involved in insuring football players and we've just exchanged views about experiences in our fields. One of the interesting things is a football player Insurance for players themselves is primarily, well, it's against death, which is obviously very rare for footballers, but against career-ending injury. And it was really interesting to get a good understanding as to how insurance companies and brokers look at footballers as as their career progresses. So they're very keen to insure young players because they know they'll get many, many years of premiums off them less keen to insure older players, partly because there's less future income, partly because there's more moral hazard. And a footballer and later in their career might be more tending to allow an injury to become a career-ending injury if they can get a big payday. So I think one of the things we've talked to them about is perhaps using some of their data to do some analysis and then perhaps bringing that into line with the age progression that we're able to generate from Transfer Lab to look at which players are likely to have longer careers and therefore be more likely to be worth insuring at older ages.
1: You can imagine that being really powerful. If the models can help predict or at least sort of give a sense of the likelihood of future injury based on intensive use of a player in particular ways, then that's got to be really powerful.
2: That's right, yeah. I mean, I think there's two elements to it. One is how likely is a player to become injured. The other is how likely are they to have a long career. And I think what we can do with the data we've got combined with an insurance data is put those together and maybe come up with some rather innovative ways of looking at the insurance for those players. Early days, yet, but quite an exciting area to look into. Yeah,
0: really exciting.
2: We may be coming to our insurance consultancy <laughs> team to give us some <laughs> insights there as well.
0: So, Bart, do you maybe want to give us a little bit of summary about
2: one of the other areas that you're working in yeah thanks yes one of the areas we are working in at the moment using transfer low analytics but extending out beyond them is to we're working with the european club association which is the big industry body for european football clubs to help build for them a friendly arrangement platform for their clubs so even though it's a big industry football is surprisingly unsophisticated in the way that football clubs arrange friendlies at the moment most clubs arrange friendlies by picking up a phone and talking to someone they know at another club particularly in the women's game that's not been very efficient as the women's game grows and clubs are trying to make sure they're arranging friendlies with teams perhaps in other parts of Europe where the teams are reasonably well matched so the ECA Decided that they wanted to build such a platform, and we said we can do that because we're good at doing that sort of thing. And we've been given the job of doing that. The platform's due to be launched in February, and as well as doing women's football, they're now going to use it for men's and youth football. So that's a project that's very exciting, and it will use the analytics that come out of Transfer Lab to help rate football clubs so that teams are able to identify other teams of similar strengths to make sure that the friendlies are appropriately
1: matched. That sounds amazing. So clubs can make sure that they get the most value out of those friendlies possible by putting themselves against teams that are going to test them in the right areas. I think that's what we're aiming
3: for. And if you like, if I'm, I don't know, the Arsenal ladies person who's responsible for organising friendlies, I'd hope that by next summer I could be saying, I want to play a team of roughly this strength. I've got these two weeks of availability. I'm willing to travel up to this distance and I'd like to play at home or away. And our system will be able to do that matching, give them some options, and I can then propose a friendly to one of those clubs and start talking about the details of it.
1: Oh, that's just brilliant.
2: Yeah, in talking to the people at the ECA, we've had some interesting stories about quite big clubs in your wanting to arrange a friendly and finding it really, really hard to do that when they've got availability. So I think they are quite excited about the potential for our tool to really help with that.
1: That's great. Tell us about some of the other stuff you're involved in.
3: Yeah, of course. So another project we're involved in at the moment is with a not-for-profit organisation called Fair Game. And they are currently campaigning for better governance in football. And I think even people who aren't that interested in football will have heard some of the sort of negative stories coming out of the football world in terms of clubs, which are big community assets, sometimes going bankrupt because of poor financial management. That's on the financial sustainability side of things, but there are also a whole host of kind of other issues within football, like environmental sustainability ensuring good diversity, equity, and inclusion standards across football clubs that potentially should be tackled. And that's what Fair Game are campaigning for, better governance across the whole of football. What we're doing is supporting them within the action and providing some of our expertise to help them develop their thoughts. And one of the areas we've been working on them with is developing something called the Sustainability Index, which is a mechanism for dividing money down the football pyramid in this country, that will reward some of those
1: things we see as positive in terms of governance. Wow. For some reason, your comments there made me think about Ryan Reynolds.
0: It's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> this idea of people coming from overseas and who are enthusiasts but don't necessarily know the local markets, do they do well as club owners? Do you see that sort of thing as a good thing?
3: It's a great question. And the Wrexham story is fantastic for a number of reasons maybe more fantastic to me because I'm not a Rexham fan. I think if I was a Rexham fan and that was happening to the club you love, potentially you're a bit more apprehensive about it. I'll leave Rexham fans to speak <laughs> for themselves in terms of what they think about the issue. From my perspective, that particular story is perhaps a good news story. They've been very innovative in terms of the strategies they've implemented at that club to grow revenue. They're operating in different spaces than most football clubs have traditionally in order to improve the amount of revenue the club gets, to improve the brands. So what I've seen from the outside has been really positive. And I think just because owners come from a different country or a different industry and don't necessarily know the local market, doesn't mean they're going to run clubs in a bad way. And I think that's maybe an example, time will tell, I guess, but maybe an example where owners from outside of that local
2: community have done a really good job at managing that business well. amazingly enough, I think that's a really astonishing story because one of my colleagues who has absolutely zero interest in football until now, watched Wrexham on television over the weekend and really enjoyed it. And is becoming, I think, a closet football fan, which is quite remarkable. Actually, Ryan Reynolds may be expanding the pool of football fans in England.
0: I'm literally in the middle of watching the show at the moment. And I think what, as I said, completely agree actually TBC on terms of how they actually pan out but the events that happened at that club in the mid-2000s which I think probably echoed across many slightly smaller hometowns across the country in terms of assets being sold off and people there to try and make a profit really does dilute town football clubs I know but we talked briefly last time about both going to see our local towns and enjoying that and that being a nice football is still very Accessible for many people at that local level, and if it goes, that that massively changes the game in the country.
2: It very much is. It's an incredibly important community asset. I think during the COVID crisis, there were several clubs, including my own Tranmere Rovers, who were very powerful members of their local community in spreading help, particularly financial and food help, within their communities in a way that wasn't possible for many other organisations. So I think they are very important community assets. And I think the work we're doing with Fair Game, going back to what Ashley was saying with the sustainability index, is really intended to make sure that far fewer of those clubs get into financial difficulties and end up with inappropriate owners, of whom I think I said Ryan Reynolds probably hopefully isn't one of those.
0: Part of the reason that we're chatting in November of twenty twenty-two is because of the pending World Cup. Now obviously the World Cup is being hosted in Qatar and Obviously, a very key factor is the human rights situation in Qatar, especially with regards to migrant workers and LGBTQ plus rights. And I don't think any of us want to diminish that as an extremely important issue, but one that within this conversation, we're not going to actually have time to really give justice to and talk about in great detail. So I'm really interested to hear Ashley and Bart's predictions for the World Cup and what insights you're going to get from it. I think we just want to note that that is a really important issue that we're not going to discuss in detail now, but not to just ignore.
2: I just will pick up briefly on that before we go into the prospects for teams. I'm going to the World Cup. I've been to every World Cup since 1990. Wow. I'm going to go and see the final for the first time ever. I'm very excited about that, but I also am in a sense, ethically conflicted. I understand there are a lot of issues. I will certainly educate myself fully about those issues and already have done. And I think the spotlight the World Cup is bringing on the circumstances in Qatar is in some ways going to be beneficial anyway, but I accept it's a very controversial subject. But that said, the World Cup, England's prospects, England-Wales prospects, both in the same group, I think they're quite good if they can get out of the group. I think the group itself will be very interesting. I think both the USA and Iran are very strong teams compared to what people think they will be. And another really interesting, important and ethically complicated situation is that of Iran and women's rights in Iran, which I think, again, the World Cup will bring a massive amount of attention to. But I'm not that optimistic England and Wales will get out of the group. I think if they do, I think England's prospects in particular might be quite good.
1: One thing that I've been conscious of in previous World Cups would be you hear a lot of talk about players being played out of their normal positions or in formats that they're not necessarily used to and that managers not getting the best out of them. How real an issue is that from your sort of more analytical perspective?
3: So the analysis we have could show shine a light on where a player is playing in a position that they're not well suited to. I would hope that that or similar types of analysis are used by the countries before they make those types of decisions. Potentially, we could think of examples in the past where that hasn't happened, but arguably, there's no excuse for making those mistakes. I think in such a high stakes competition, you should have access to this types of information to make those decisions.
0: Should Gareth Southgate on the phone if they've not already <laughs> thought about
3: this? <laughs> I think potentially, just to pick up on. Bart's predictions he made there, I think quite often because we're seen as doing this football analytics work, we're seen to be able to tell the future and give a prediction about what's going to happen. I mean, why football is such a fantastic game and also why we can add value, I think, is that it is very random. So if the World Cup was going to be played a thousand times, I'd be pretty certain that we'd predict the winner. (laughs) It's not going to be played a thousand times. (laughs) So who knows who's going to win it? And I think that's why many people love the game because it is so random sometimes.
1: Actually, that's made me wonder, are you aware of whether gambling companies use football analytics to help set their odds? They do indeed, yeah. I think the two most
2: successful football clubs in terms of the use of analytics and the clever management of transfers, in England anyway, are Brentford and Brighton, and both of those clubs are owned by People who have made their money in the betting industry, Matthew Benham at Brentford and Tony Bloom at Brighton. In fact, they were colleagues and then fell out, but they both made a lot of money doing that. And I think they've used the analytics that they've used within their betting companies to inform their transfer policies and been incredibly successful with those. So I think they've proved that sensible use of analytics can make you money both in betting and in football. I feel personally quite unsure about the ethics of betting itself and gambling. But I think the fact that those tools can be successful in both arenas is very clear.
1: One of the things that we sometimes see is that players playing at the World Cup who do well might use their good performance there to leverage a future career move. And I'm sure everybody will be watching carefully and thinking about who they'd be trying to tap on the shoulder. To what extent can your analytics be used by players in their own contract negotiations and to make sure that they make the right moves?
2: Yes, that's a really good question. I think the World Cup is a massive showcase for footballers and we'd expect a number of players to come out of it with enhanced reputations, looking potentially to renegotiate their contracts either to make a move or to enhance their earnings. And I think one of the things we've found with Transfer Lab is that it can support players in those negotiations with clubs. One of the biggest, most successful players in the world, Kevin De Bruyne, used Transfer Lab analytics within his suite of tools for negotiating his contract with Manchester City a year ago. He was looking not only to improve his financial terms, but also to make sure he was playing for the right club to maximise his chances of success in the Champions League. And that's what the analysis that our partners at Analytics FC did using our analytics to
1: do so. So that is amazing that players can actually benefit from this too.
2: There are several other ones who are below the radar, but have also used it in their contract negotiations. And not surprisingly, players will want to use whatever analytics are out there to support
1: that. One final question I had, I don't know how much light you can shed on this, but what is the state of football analytics like compared to the sort of analytics that happens in the US with their main sports, baseball and basketball, football and whatnot? Because I get the impression that they do a lot.
3: That impression is true from what I know. It's certainly a more long-standing industry than Football Analytics, for sure. Once again, people are quite secretive about what they do, so it's hard to get an insight into exactly what different teams are using. But I think what I can say is that when we first launched Transfer Lab, we were walking into many clubs explaining the fundamental concepts kind of what we were trying to do with data. And there wasn't that widespread appreciation that this was something that was used. At that point in time, I imagine that In the big American sports, data was well known as being a tool that they would use, not just for performance analysis, but for recruitment. And that's something that has developed during our time within the industry, indeed from five years ago to now. Now we don't quite have to give the same, I guess, explanations of the simple concepts which we did five years ago. So it was a very new
1: industry then. And how exciting to be involved in the sort of period during which the sort of state of the art has developed in this area. That's fantastic. So we're coming to the end of the podcast. Normally, we ask a couple of fun questions at the end. So I wonder if I could ask you first, Bart, what would your dream career be outside of financial services? That's a good question. I think I
2: am living my dream career, actually, So, although I'm still within financial services. I've been a pension consultant for 35 years. I've been doing football analytics alongside pensions for about the last five years. And I'm going to move because the football analytics is becoming more and more interesting, and more and more complex. I'm going to be moving more to spending more and more time doing that. So I will be living my dream. That's amazing.
0: And Ashley, for you, if Sean and I were coming around for dinner, maybe Bart can come as well, what would you cook for (laughs) us?
3: (laughs) Good question. So I think in this house, we quite often do tapas-style dining, partly because we like trying different things, partly because we're very indecisive. (laughs) So I think I would do some kind of small plate thing, probably with a centrepiece of what well, I like to think I make quite a good roasted vegetable curry. It will always taste slightly <laughs> different because I don't have a recipe for it. So it kind of depends which day you come on as to how good it is. But I think that would be my centrepiece.
0: That sounds.
1: I think I very much approve of that.
0: Yeah. Menu. <laughs> Thank you so much both for coming on today. I have personally found this an absolutely fascinating subject. Thank you so much for sharing those insights with us today. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode.
1: This podcast is brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, Megan Frost and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode.
0: This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.